This is Still Learning, a podcast all about learning styles and stories where people describe pivotal learning moments in their lives, how they came to understand their own learning style or process, and what they are curious about or still learning today. My name is Katie. In this episode, I spoke with Denise Olagi. In our conversation, Denise describes how her early experiences as a learner shaped her expansive thinking about education, her motivation to pursue teaching professionally, and how she sees education intersect with both activism and ethnic studies. We also talked about her gradual transition from the teaching world to her current role as an accessibility specialist and diversity and inclusion advocate including how learning about her own disability influenced her perspective on the potential for technology to be a positive force for inclusion and social change. Denise also explained what growth mindset means to her and how mindfulness and play shape her ongoing learning as a mother and person today. It was a delight to hear Denise's take on learning and how understanding its many threads ultimately helps us know our whole selves. So here's my conversation with Denise Olagi. I would love to start with kind of your background as a learner. And have you, you know, Ken Robinson? Uh-huh. Um, have you heard him describe this story of how like asking someone about their education at a dinner party is like the most personal question you can ask in a way? Ah. Like, no, I haven't heard that. I, I'm kind of forgetting the context around how he tells the story, but he says something like, you know, education is something that like everyone has an opinion about, regardless <laughs> of whether they have any like personal experience professionally with it, because we all went to school for the most part, right? Um, so when I say background, I guess I mean that I'm curious about your early experience as a learner, as a child growing up, and kind of what stands out to you now looking back from um, on your experiences in school and just kind of growing up and learning. Sure. So I think for me, I was really lucky and privileged to have parents who sacrificed a lot to send my sister and I to independent school in San Francisco. And this was a luxury, you know, that they grew up not having themselves. Um, They grew up going to public school and they kind of stumbled upon independent schools um, as young parents. And they thought, okay, let's try it out for preschool. Um, When I was just Mm -hmm. two, three years old, they're like, oh, Denise might like this Montessori life. Um, Let's try it out. So I had the the wonderful experience of growing up in independent schools um, as a young person all the way from preschool to 12th grade. And for me, education, while I call myself kind of a, a striving mind, I always wanted to achieve. So in that traditional sense of kind of doing well in my academic classes, I also, the things that stand out to me when you think about school is my friends definitely number one. Number two, the physical space and environment and the culture of going to school. So for example, like I think about the, we called them the willows at my old elementary Mm -hmm. school. It's just this like jungle of trees um, that we were able to play with, um, you know, climb in trees, play with dirt, get really creative and do imaginative, imaginative play. And, um, 
I had a lot of pets in all of my classrooms growing up. So really remember like the chinchilla in preschool that we had. Um, you know, I remember the big sand tray that my third grade teacher had mm. where you could have special time to play with all the little toys in the sand tray and tell stories aloud to her and she would uh, oh, transcribe cool. them for you in a journal. Yeah, it was that really That was in third fun. grade? Mm-hmm. That's so cool because I feel like often there's this idea now that like by third grade we shouldn't be doing stuff like sand and you know real materials it's more like paper and pencil but no it's still very much like rich developmental time of course yeah I mean and those are the things that I remember right like I remember Mm -hmm. Oscar the bear where (laughs) it was a stuffed animal that you take home with you for a week when you're person of the week and you get to write fictional stories around what you did with Oscar the bear when you took him home and you could share your stories with the class afterwards um so all this to say is that for me, when I look back at my time as a kid, right, in elementary school and middle school, a lot of the memories are around my friendships, my um, kind of social experiences outside the classroom, recess. I remember sneaking to the herb garden and eating hmm. chives, you know, <laughs> we hmm. weren't supposed to. And then I remember one you kid rebel. in my class. chives. Exactly. <laughs> Woo, chives. Um, one kid in my class was dared to eat an ant and ate an ant. We all learned like what aloe vera was and would put them on our scrapes because we learned that, you know, it had a healing power. So I think for me, um, I realized that I really wanted to make that impact on the lives of kids when I was an adult, right? And, And part of that culture shaping and that imagination and that freedom came from the teachers that I had in school. So I had really warm, amazing teachers that valued students for their whole selves, right? So for me, for example, I really struggled with math throughout my whole formal education. And knowing, though, that, you know, I was maybe just not good at math yet, having Mm -hmm. that growth mindset, but also that, you know, maybe just wasn't one of my strengths. And I knew that I was really good at making friends. I knew that I was really good at art. I knew that I was really good at understanding history and storytelling and writing. And so I think that was kind of the magic in my upbringing um, with school is that I had these wonderful teachers that were really able to cultivate, okay, you know, you have writing, reading, and math. Yes, those are kind of the traditional forms of success criteria in our schools but there's so much more than that um and and so much more than that in not only being a kid but being a person right and so I think I was really fortunate that I had teachers that brought that out in me and that empowered me to think of myself in a confident way beyond just the grades or beyond just the traditional sense of academics um so yeah that's I know that's a long-winded way of answering your question but that's really what stands out for me as a as a kid growing up and going to school. I love that you highlighted making friends as a skill and friends connect. It seems like connection was a big mm-hmm. part of your early elementary and kind of childhood experience. And also in like with people, with teachers, with peers, and also with the physical world of your school. Um, mm-hmm. I love that idea of the willows and yeah, I think it's so, we think about like the parks and the outdoor spaces that 
are really the landscape of our childhoods. It's it's such a privilege to be able to spend so much time learning outside. Exactly. But yeah. yeah, tell me more about then how you kind of zooming a little forward, how you moved from that experience into more formal education, like what you chose to study university-wise, and then how that led to teaching. Sure. So my path is one of following one's um, kind of true passion and that connection back to people, right? So for me, I knew, okay, I strive in relationships and I really thrive in that bond between someone else um, and myself. So when I went to college, um, I was like, okay, how can I be a professional relationship builder? But at my college, unfortunately, I couldn't get a teaching credential as an undergraduate. It was kind of an extra certificate. So instead, what I did, knowing that that was kind of my end goal down the line, I studied ethnic studies, which was really, really powerful to me because it was taking history and kind of upending it, mixing it with sociology, looking at power dynamics, mm. privilege, power, and identity all mixed together. And I was really brought to ethnic studies because as a student activist, as someone who wanted to make social impact and change in the world, I loved that ethnic study was almost a, um, it was almost a act of resistance in its own, having mm -hmm. the department exist. Um, you know, it was started out of SF State and then came to Berkeley um, as really this resistance to how the American and um, world history mm. have been told in the past by the oppressor and not the oppressed. Mm. And so really changing and, and rethinking our mindset on how we think about history, the legacies it left on our current society, and then how it impacts us today was really impactful. So things like learning about how schools not all, always were forms of liberation, right? or how um, the incarceration system in America is specifically um, oppressive to black and brown people, similar mm -hmm. to um, housing rules and regulations and discrimination, right? Yeah. So thinking about all these systems that have really come to the forefront in today's world, right? In yeah. 2020, 2021, thinking about um, institutional and systemic forms of oppression and racism and other isms was really what I studied in college. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of people would say to me, wow, what, what are you gonna do with ethnic studies when you graduate? There wasn't obviously a direct correlation between that major and a career path. Um, and I would sometimes joke with people like at social situations or events like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be an activist when I grow up. <laughs> just, just to see what they had to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but really I knew that I wanted to be a teacher because I, I saw that in my mind at that point in my life, I saw being a teacher as really an amazing way of making positive social change in the world um, to a population that are so open and flexible and accepting of new ideas and 
forming their own sense of self and identity, right? Children. Yeah. So they don't have to unlearn um, a lot of programming it, to totally. be the sponges for whatever you're bringing up. Yeah, exactly. And not to say that I wanted to, you know, tell them what to think or Program how to be, them. but more of like <laughs> cultivate that and facilitate yeah. critical thinking and facilitate questioning the world around them. Um, and questioning who they were and how they fit in and how they can make a, be- a better change in the world. And so for me, I saw teaching really as that step um, in my career. And, you know, it, it was for me for many years. I, I really enjoyed the bond and the relationship and the difference I could make in the lives of my students. Um, I taught first grade and, you know, just to be able to see someone from the beginning of the year not be able to read to the end of the year, be able to read and say, wow, I was able to be there as a support system to help this person read what, what a life skill, um, to be a part of. So what a, what a way to be an activist, right? (laughs) I mean, the overlap there. (laughs) Right, right. So I really saw that as, you know, and, and to be quite honest, in hindsight, I think I saw a pretty narrow definition of what it meant to be an activist, right? Mm. I think, for a long time, I thought, oh, you have to be really like on the ground at the forefront doing the grassroots work. Um, but I think since then, my definition has opened up. But but mm-hmm. then it worked out well for me. I, I I enjoyed teaching for the time that I was in it. Yeah. Well, I know I've shared this with you, but being able to visit your classroom when I was thinking about whether I wanted to switch from kind of the alternate path in tech and other career lands to teaching and spending a day with your first grade class and this moment of laying on the floor with our limbs spread out and like a starfish for like some (laughs) mindfulness is what I remember. I don't know if that's what it was. It was like an after lunch cool down moment. I I just remember that so vividly and thinking like, oh, wow, (laughs) this is where it's at. That's amazing. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's a memory I don't remember. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I, I know that I did that type of thing with my students, yeah. but I appreciate you kind of reliving that. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, we did a lot of kind of mindfulness and, yeah, relaxing after recess. <laughs> so important. I mean, all that self-regulation that we need as people, maybe now more than ever, right, living in such a challenging time. Yeah, you spoke about how teaching became this way to explore relationship building and watching and facilitating children in the learning process. And what was that like for you as a learner and how were you aware of your own learning process or desires being satisfied or not um, to the extent that then you made the decision to move out of teaching? Tell me about that. Sure, yeah. So for me, actually, my decision to move out of teaching was one that took a a few years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't like one day I woke up and I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I need to change my career path. So what happened was over time, I realized, oh, like I really actually enjoy some of the more programmatic systemic stuff I'm involved in outside of the classroom, still within the school. So, for example, doing diversity and inclusion programming and volunteer work, um, volunteering for curriculum design committees, um, kind of seeing what 
tech companies in the space were doing an education and going to webinars or meet and greets to learn more or be a, a teacher expert and give feedback on certain products. I was like, wow, there are a lot of intersections with education that I just didn't know existed as a young person choosing my major or my you know next step after undergraduate. So I started to see all these different opportunities for different outlets to still be within the world of education, but not necessarily in the confines of a classroom. And I started to explore what that looked like. So I was able to, for example, work at an ed tech company and do some consulting work with them. I was able to work at several nonprofits, help design curriculum and do instructional design all of which were digital facing. So really learning then more about how technology and education intersects. And then on a personal level, um, I, I kind of realized, okay, teaching while so meaningful and powerful and I love what I do every day wasn't sustainable for me. So it felt really, um, and I say this now with a little bit of a cringe because, you know, I'm not even a teacher in today's world of COVID <laughs> and I can't even imagine what it's like to, to teach right now in the COVID world. But um, for me, it just wasn't emotionally sustainable, the energy that it took. Um, I had nothing left in my reserves for myself or for my partner, or for friends or family. And so for me, I was thinking, okay, how can I still make a difference in the world that's within the realm of education, but has maybe a little bit of a different spin on how close I am to the impact I want to make. Mm. And I remember a friend telling me that that was her way of trying to determine where she wanted her next job to go was, okay, how close do you want to be to the impact you're making? If it's in the front lines, you want to be really close and see the direct impact, right? And that gives you a sense of like, oh, okay, for this example, you maybe want to be in the classroom, you want to be a teacher. Next step would be maybe you want to do something related to education or be in schools, but be an administrator or be a leader of schools. After that, you know, be something tangential, um, nonprofit related or something that is education or school related, but it's not a teacher. Um, so I started really exploring kind of these, if you think about them, kind of rippling out bubbles of what it means to be an educator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, long story short, I, on the personal side, started navigating and understanding what it meant to have a disability. Mm -hmm. And so um, in my own life, I was diagnosed a kind of, a, I guess, five or six years into teaching with my own uh, vision disability of having mm -hmm. a condition called Stargardt's. Mm -hmm. So it's where uh, over time in my life, I will lose my central vision and mm -hmm. it will become harder and harder to kind of, you know, see details um, on a page, for example, in text or see far away or recognize people's faces over time and being able to navigate that kind of personal identity shift of like, okay, what does it mean to have a disability? Um, and then also this other shift of, okay, what does it mean to navigate being an educator in a different sense? And I was like, huh, 
there was kind there was kind of I guess a light bulb moment of meeting people who worked on technology in education with a specific focus on disability mm. and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what landed me here to where I am today as an accessibility specialist was thinking about, okay, I was kind of on the receiving end for a long time as a teacher of all these ed tech products for students and needing to constantly adapt them, customize them or provide feedback to the companies because, you know, they were missing some, some big points. Uh, what about if I went on the other end and was able to actually inform the design process earlier on, not as necessarily a user, but as someone helping do the design. Um, so that's kind of what transitioned me. Long story short, like this was, you know, over three to four years of me trying out different jobs, finding out more on my own, um, doing a lot of research, talking to a lot of different people, networking, I'm doing a lot of soul searching and then finally landing on like, wow, okay, there's actually this whole field out there that did not exist to my knowledge when I was, you know, 10 years prior graduating from college, but exists now and now where now more than ever where people are thinking about, okay, how can technology be a source of social change, social good? And I wanted to be part of that. That's so cool, Denise. Yeah, I, I love you. Thank you for sharing that whole kind of trajectory because there are some parts in there that I didn't know. And it's so interesting, too, to hear thinking about, um, you know, how we evolve career wise and priorities in our lives and how like from the place where you were feeling that teaching felt so meaningful, but it was personally draining or, you know, not leaving enough for you to be your full self and to give back it then kind of shifting to prioritize like well, how do I want to feel along with the same question of where you know how close do I want my impact to be and to expand that idea of there's so many ways to touch this world of education that I'm interested in um, yeah and also accessibility I mean is such an such interesting territory and I think it's something I would like I want to learn a lot more about still too, but in some of my learning the past couple of years and in talking about it with students, I mean, it's such a wonderful way to open up conversations about inclusion and visible versus invisible disability and how it's just all about differences of ability, really. Um, what has surprised you most in in this most recent chapter, I guess, of learning about technology for social change and accessibility. Like, I guess, yeah, where do you feel like the current is going and what feels either surprising or most compelling to you about being in this space? Yeah, I think off the top of my head, the first thing was realizing, wow, there are so many down to earth, amazing change makers within corporate America <laughs> hmm, or corporate reassuring. spaces. Yeah. And for, for profit spaces that I didn't realize, um, as someone on the outside world, I think I had this stereotype, um, and 
wasn't really familiar enough with with role models in the space. And then once I started to get to know people on a more personal level and professional level, whether it be going to conferences and events or um, just networking and then starting my job now working within a tech company and realizing like, wow, okay, you know, people want to, um, they really want to walk the talk, right? And um, also a really great mixture of advocacy, right? So trying to change hearts and minds, trying to change company culture Mm. to really embrace this idea of not only is accessibility and inclusion in our products the right thing to do and yeah you know a feel good for the company but it actually makes our products and our company better for everyone um and so it was a really a fun opportunity to realize like wow yeah there's just so many people out there doing doing good work there's resources there to do the work um it's, it can bridge my love for education and advocacy. And then along the way, I've, I've been really pleasantly surprised and excited about also learning about technology and product design as I go. Um, so that's been, I think, the most kind of surprising and compelling piece for me about this. Yeah, that's so cool. So it sounds like, do you feel optimistic about the role of technology then? In. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> that's a big question, Katie. Yes. But um, <laughs> I think, in my sense, in terms of the work I do, this the mm-hmm. scope of what mm-hmm. I see in terms of my company and the role of my team in talking about accessibility. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm really optimistic. I think that more and more people and companies are seeing the benefit. Right? There's over one billion people in the world with some form of disability. And like you said, it's really just a spectrum of ability, right? Yeah. It's human nature to have a disability, right? Um, Yeah, or even temporary versus permanent. And like there's so many different ways to think about it. And I think about it as also even just in my little world within the classroom, like students being able to use their iPads for speech dictation or like other tools that help them meet their classmates and participate in a way that feels more equitable is amazing. And there's so many other questions, right? About our dependence on tools. And I know that's a little bit, or technology, that's a little bit of a different conversation. Um, But I think, yeah, the, the COVID Zoom world has, I'm sure, I'm curious about that, how working online too and having more video chat has influenced your ideas about accessibility and inclusion. Um, Because I feel like we still as a culture have a lot to learn there about boundaries and communication. Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, for the most part overall, I think a remote world in which, you know, working from home, communicating from home has been, like you said, more and more equitable. But I would say the caveat is the tools and the technology, though, need to be accessible to make that a reality. 
So there needs to be captioning available on these video conferencing tools. There needs to be, um, you know, an alternative text format for visuals and images. Um, There needs to be buttons that are labeled and the UI needs to be um, able to support a screen reader. So there's all these different ways in which it has the potential and by it, I mean, technology has the potential to be uh, equitable force for good. And in order to do that, we as the human creators, right? Technology doesn't just exist um, on its own, right? We create it. So we as the creators have the power to really change those technologies and platforms and make sure there's no friction or barriers for people. And so that's really my job is to empower people, whether you're a designer, a developer, a products lead, a marketer, a content editor, data analyst, what have you, you have the power to actually start to think about all the different ways in which we can make our products and platforms more um, equitable and open and usable for all of our users, um, no matter what their ability level. Um, and really it's, you know, not a matter of, oh, well, we've done that in the past and this is how it is. It's like, no, let's think creatively. Let's think innovatively. Okay. If there's a new problem that arises because everyone's working from home, we need to solve it. We need to figure it out. Um, and that's actually a really great part about accessible and inclusive design. When you think about technology, it actually creates, I think, a little bit more innovation and creativity when Mm -hmm. problem solving um, and, and not relying on old ways of how we've been communicating or how we've been um, working together in the past. Um, just you've, you've spoken a little bit to from a critical thinking and creativity st- standpoint. And also you mentioned having a striving mind as a kid. And we've talked a little bit about this before too, but how does mindset and growth mindset play into either your work today or your perspective as, as an ongoing learner and advocate um, in your work? Like what kind of place do you see growth mindset really being helpful or maybe even not? <laughs> like, is there a space yeah. where growth mindset is, is dangerous? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that Carol Dweck would like, would like that line, but maybe. Right? Um, <laughs> I know, just, just pushing some buttons, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I mean, I'm, I'm all for growth to... mindset. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think. Um, it's a really good question. I think for me personally, so thinking me as learner in this space, I I know that I've taken on what a growth mindset means in my own work because I'm trying to be really kind to myself <laughs> and give myself space and kind of room to be in that learning process and in the unknown, which can be really challenging for me, right? To not know that sometimes I'm not the expert on everything Um, I'm not yet there as um, an advanced, you know, person who can speak to X, Y, and Z subjects. So um, for me, I think this learning process of learning about technology and product design and accessibility, a lot of it was self-taught, right? A lot of it was me doing a lot of reading in my free time, talking to people who were in that um, space or doing the work already, asking questions, observing, listening, 
going to webinars, going to different boot camps, um, but then also learning as I go, right? So even, you know, today I'm doing the work almost two and a half years now, and I'm still learning every day about accessibility and about my team and my company and um, how, how things operate and how things work. And so to give myself that pause when someone asked me a question and to say, mm. you know, oh, I don't know. <laughs> or, you know, I don't yeah. know, but I'm going to um, figure it out with you. Or I don't know, but yeah, let's solve that together. Yeah. I don't know, but let's ask this other person or let's look that up together. So yeah, I think for me, that's where growth mindset comes into it, where it's this balance, right? Because on one hand, definitely in the beginning of when I started this job, I had a really big imposter syndrome. Mm. I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, they hired the wrong person. I'm not going to live up to their expectations and standards. You know, I am not a tech person. I'm not a product person. I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. And then realizing like, no, actually, that's exactly why they hired me. Right. Right. It's because I'm an educator, because I'm an experienced teacher those are the strengths I'm bringing to the table. And it's okay if the other areas I can learn as I go. Um, so it, it is kind of this balance, right, of um, being okay, not knowing everything and knowing what you don't know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but at the same time, not letting it impact you where you go into this spiral of imposter syndrome and questioning yourself, right? It's kind of, you need to have that, that confidence and that that boost from yourself of like I'm just not there yet, right? Um, and that's okay. And and we're gonna keep moving forward um, from that place. Yes, the power of yet. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think you're totally right that there's there's a balance to strike there, and I think it's an ongoing process. And the more we normalize saying I don't know or I'm not sure or I think I made a mistake here, but here's what I'm learning from it. Like that, that make, making that process more transparent. Like it's, it's much more acceptable, I think, or expected, right? With kids in school, because you're in, your job is to learn. And even then we're already with, as all the research on growth mindset exposes, we already have these fixed ideas about what we're good at and what we're not in school from an early age that we need to try to break apart. And that's, an amazing thing that teachers can help do. And yet, you know, there's maybe more allowance for that as a kid. And suddenly, where does it go as an adult in the workplace, especially if you're someone who's evolved in your career, we feel less allowance personally and relationally for kind of transparent learning, right? Like, or I'm, I'm learning this as I go. Yeah, how are you... How do you feel about that now? Like, how are you synthesizing that with your personal life and learning outside of work? Um, or is there anything that um, you've maybe taken on since COVID happened that's given you a different perspective on professional learning? Like, is there a distinction for you, I guess, between like personal and professional learning or do they all kind of flow together? Yeah, I think for me, they tend to mesh a lot of the mindsets that I have in my work life or my personal life tend to bleed into one another um, in a good way. So 
I think the biggest thing that's happened to me recently is becoming a mom. And that's been just world changing. Um, And to also become a mom during a global pandemic um, and a world that is strife with, you know, racial injustice and political tension as well. And um, also being a full-time working person as well while Mm -hmm. being a mom has been the biggest learning moment I would say yeah of of my whole life (laughs) um in a good way though right and I think it's really pushed me to live in the moment so I used to do a lot of mindfulness teaching like we started out the conversation alluding to um, with my first grade students thinking about the breath being present with yourself in the moment, not being worried about the past or the future or that anticipatory anxiety of what if. And I have to admit, it was a lot easier said than done (laughs) as a teacher um, Mm -hmm. when I was saying that with my students and helping them get there. And so for me, I really put that into practice in my life now as a mom where, you know, with, with, my son it is full on in the present moment and almost out of necessity (laughs) right it's put the phone away put the screens away don't think about my to-do list um, or don't think about oh what's the next step after this or three steps down the line you know nope we're just here in the garden Mm. we're playing with the dirt (laughs) (laughs) we're digging And maybe he'll find a rotten tomato or a lemon in the garden. And I'm going to see what he does with it. And that's it. You know, there's no plan. There's no agenda. There's no curriculum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We are just literally taking it moment by moment. And it's actually been really freeing um, for me because I think, like a lot of us in our society, I was brought up with this mindset of constant productivity, constantly utilizing your time to be the most efficient you can be um, in the time that you have. And, you know, it got to the point where even I was before like scheduling my relaxation, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Where um, everything had kind of this rigid schedule and or you were trying to optimize constantly um, for the greatest output. And, you know, I still have to say I have moments like that where I'm like, oh my gosh, my to-do list, like got to do this X, Y, and Z, let's get it done. Um, I definitely still have bursts of that. And at the same time, though, overall, my general take um, and relationship with time and productivity has just chilled out. Um, I'm able to really just enjoy singing with my son, playing, seeing where he goes, having no sense of a schedule, um, being playful and doing silly things just for the heck of it. And that's what I actually miss about teaching. A lot of that was in teaching as well, where little kids just bring that out of you of just doing the fun stuff because it's fun. There's yeah, no rhyme right. or reason. There's no agenda. 
And the, the play becomes the source material for learning because it's okay. like that we're playing and this comes up and then, oh, now I'm, yeah, I have a question about this. You know, it's the most okay. natural way. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I'm at a stage where I have a toddler son, so he's just learning to walk and talk and do all those things. And um, so it's almost like this it's this new way of thinking about learning, too, where it's, it's not in this traditional, like, oh, we're going to have this conversation or we're going to read this book and then have questions about it. It's not even that structured. Um, so I'm really trying to take my striving mind and my product productive mind mm. my teacher mind and kind of just let it you know let those minds maybe still exist within me but say hey you know you can take a chill pill yes <laughs> um I... and it's been it's been great I've really enjoyed it so far and um I'm sure there, if there's parents out there listening they're gonna be like oh yeah it's a lifelong ride <laughs> yeah I love the way you described the kind of productivity bias or that force within us it kind of you know it's it's so natural especially if you you know have been high achieving and done well in school and really um so desiring of accomplishment right like productivity is a lot of how we've equated or we've determined our worth and yet I think about it, I mean, this sounds very hippy-dippy, also comes from like the teacher world, but almost as like we identify our emotions that come and go, right? Like, oh, this fear is here, it's here to protect me, or this anxiety, like, thank you for being here, but like, I'm okay, (laughs) you know, and how we kind of identify, name it to tame it, all of that. It's almost like that, maybe we could take that lens with productivity as as an impulse also. Like, oh, I know that I wanna, I wanna do, 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 and I'm just going to take a breath and be. Exactly. Yeah. Have you heard of um, the social thinking curriculum with the unthinkable? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it made me think of that. I used to use that in my first grade oh, classroom. And with a character, yeah. did you say? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I remember it's like characters. rock brain and something or. Rock brain. <laughs> who was a really rigid thinker. Yeah. You had worry wall who always was worrying about what, what if in the future, um, I mean, really, all humans need this. Exactly. (laughs) Glass man who had big reactions to small problems, right? And so, yeah, maybe we should create a um, a a productivity unthinkable. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Denise. Is there anything else you want to share or reflect on as part of kind of thinking about this learning journey or anything else that's come up for you? I th- oh, I can read you one of my favorite quotes. Oh, yeah. Let me find it. Let me Love a quote. So, some of you may have heard about this quote before. It is from Marianne Williamson. Mm. And for me, when I first read it, it was taped up on a huge poster on a classroom wall in a classroom in Oakland that I was visiting as a student teacher. So I was observing the teacher in the classroom and really trying to understand if I wanted to be a teacher. She was amazing. I love the culture of the classroom. And ever since, I remember writing this quote down in my notebook (laughs) and then putting it up in my classroom when I Mm -hmm. became a teacher. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, 
who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? And that was just not only really encapsulating of the impact I think that educators can make on their students, but also became kind of a mantra for myself in thinking about self-worth, impact on the world, and, you know, that there's so much potential in all of us that we just really need to cultivate that, be kind to ourselves, and give ourselves um, space to, to really open up and grow. So, yeah, that's one of my mm. favorite quotes. Thank you so much. I love that. I don't think I've heard that before. Cool. Nice. Who are you not to be? It's true. Mm-hmm. 